Father, all of us, our eyes turn to you, looking upon you and beholding, well, at least two things right now, goodness and grace. We've read this morning already what's been read to us in your word in Titus. We see the goodness. I mean, we just see your exponential goodness and kindness in grace poured out upon us when we were yet enemies of yours. As we look to your word today, Father, and we see what your word says, what your perspective is on mankind's sinful condition, we see in all of its, all of its wretchedness, all of its darkness, all of its wickedness, and we would then wonder why then would you send the beloved son to die for people like that, people like me, people like us? There was nothing outside of you compelling you to do so. And yet, God, by your own free will and choice, the son came and lived perfect life on our behalf, died an awful death on our behalf, but then has been raised and ascended in unparalleled glory and beauty on our behalf. And for that, Lord, we, we come empty-handed but with yet voices to lift to you and to sing a song of praise and worship that you deserve. So as we look at your word today, Father, minister the truthfulness of it to us completely, fully, so that we might grasp what it is that we see today so that you, so that the work of Christ might be magnified and enjoyed even more. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be continuing on in Romans chapter 3 this morning, verses 9 through 20. Um, you know, I was reminded that there was, there was a time, a period of time where mankind fully enjoyed fellowship with God. And though we don't live in that time period right now, there is coming a day where that time period will be once again for us. Fellowship with God, enjoyed, experienced for all of eternity. But for now, we live in a different period of time. We live in a world of sin and separation from God. And you could say that the Bible's grand theme is about fellowship with God created, fellowship with God lost, and fellowship with God restored once again. There was a time period where God and man had full fellowship. They enjoyed it with one another, spoke with one another, had fellowship with one another in perfect harmony, in unity, 
But then because of the fall, sin has come in and created that separation and that barrier between God and man, which is infinitely deep and wide and uncrossable aside from faith in Christ alone. And that's the period that we live in right now, where fellowship between God and man has been completely broken by by mankind's entrance into sin and participation in sin, and that separation exists. And what our text will draw us to today is the reality and the depravity and the wickedness of really just like how bad that separation is between us and how, um, you know, fallen we are in our nature. We talk about believers, we talk about this all the time, like our sinful condition in the fall, but passages like this really make you wrestle with the, the breadth and the depth of it. I mean, that's good for us to do. I know we live in a culture where it's like nothing but good days. I don't want to hear anything but good news. And If it's not good news, if it's not positivity, if it's not encouragement, keep it to yourself. I don't want to hear it. But the scriptures point us to passages like this, illuminate passages like this, which, have, which are very clear with what is wrong with us, our depravity, our sinfulness, our wretchedness, our evil, for the purpose of then making the work of Christ and the gospel that much more wonderful and glorious. You don't, uh, we don't have a clue as to how wonderful and great the work of Christ is on our behalf if we don't see our wickedness and our darkness and our depravity. You've got to see the contrast. And that's why passages like this exist. Last week we looked at the trueness of God. And I think that that's important to wrestle with because you'll come across, you'll, we're going to read this passage here in a few moments. You're going to read through it and you're going to go, that sounds really bad. Like, is that really the way that it is? And the answer is, of course, yes, that's really the way that it is because it's in the Bible. We go, wow, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like that. Is this really the way that like my unsaving, really nice, my unsaved but yet really nice family members and coworkers, is this the way that they really are? And the answer is Yes. But we really struggle with that answer being yes if we don't first come to the conclusion of what it is that we, sp- what we talked about last week and letting God be true. You have to allow God to be true. You have to allow his judgments, his perspective, his, his truth permeate and saturate your thinking. I mean, it's hard enough, right? As a Christian, I come across many passages in the Bible where I go, that's really hard to hear. Is that really the way that it is? Is there some way, God, that we can soften this up a little bit? This is kind of hard. But God's word is true, and we need to come to it as being true and receive it as being true. And if there are passages of Scripture that we wrestle with that are hard for us, then that's good. Wrestle. Struggle. Go to God and plead with him. This is hard. I don't understand this. I don't like this. Be gracious and kind and merciful to me. Help me to understand. I want to yield to you. I know I should be doing at least that much. And watch him work and unfold in our lives. So it's important to see God's trueness as we look at the sinfulness of man. Last week we saw the title of last week's sermon was Let Let God Be True. The title of this week's sermon is Let Man Be Sinful. Um, I thought about this as um, we were looking at, thinking about what it was that we learned last week and what we're going into today and the sinfulness of mankind. And this is the thought, one of the thoughts that occurred to me was um, regarding Israel and 
the reception of the law, right? Like we saw last week that they had the advantage because they were given the oracles of God. And I was thinking to myself, you know, in many ways, Israel serves as a perfect example of just how sinful mankind is. To have divine revelation given to you, and yet that not being enough to convert them. I mean, you think about the importance of divine revelation, what it is that we have in our hands here in the scriptures. It's incredibly important. But then I'm thinking to myself, they had divine revelation. What prevented them from from receiving God's divine revelation and from following him and loving him and worshiping him rightly? And there was a key component that was missing in all of that. And that revelation doesn't always mean regeneration. Regardless of whether or not we have the divine revelation of God's word, we're always still dependent upon God to reveal its its truthfulness to us and to regenerate our hearts. I mean, this is how you can share the gospel with a non-believer. You can, have a, you can open up the Bible, you can read the Bible, and why, does it instantly, why don't they convert instantly on the spot? You're giving them divine revelation. Isn't that, what's, isn't that what is needed for someone to become a Christian and come to know Christ? Well, certainly that's part of it. But the reason why you can share and read divine revelation and quote divine revelation to people and them still not come to know Christ is because they need regeneration. They need God himself to work, to make this book that sits in so many people's homes on shelves and on coffee tables gathering and collecting dust. We need God to take what, is, what we have encapsulated in here and to make it come alive. And that's only, that, only God can do that work. And we see that in our text again today as we begin to read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. So let's, let's read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 and work our way through it. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin." We, we, we made the point as we looked at chapter 2, verses 25 and 29, 
the remarkable work that God does by his spirit when he circumcises the heart of somebody. That's the, the, the work of salvation is a work of the spirit, circumcising the sinful heart. And, um, and that, is, that is when someone truly is regenerated and comes to know Christ and then begins to want to live a life of obedience to him in um, gratitude and love and thankfulness, all the right motivations to doing those things. And then we're faced with the reality, or as Paul is, as he's writing here in, in Romans chapter 3, of this question arises in chapter 3, verse 1, of what advantage does the Jew have? What did we have then? If, this, if, if, if true conversion and worship and being a follower of God is done by the Spirit of God working in someone's heart to change them, circumcising their heart, in which he's doing in the Gentiles now, and they're actually being true worshipers of God, then what was the advantage to all the things that we had and that we were exposed to? And he goes on to talk about there was much in every way. You had divine revelation. And we work through that, and that the truthfulness of God has continued to be maintained all throughout the ages, even to them, even through um, the Old Testament and all throughout the ages. But then another question arises in verse 9. Well, what then? Are Jews any better off? And Paul's answer is no, not at all. We're, we're, we're weighing this, this, this conversation, this thought pattern that's going on in the mind of a Jew. Okay, so God is doing something among pagan Gentiles by a work of the Spirit regenerating them. And we Jews had all this divine revelation open to us for all these generations. Did we have an advantage? And the answer is yes. Okay, so we were better off then, right? Well, no. Having an advantage... And being better off isn't necessarily the same thing. I used the example last week, like my, my children are being raised in a Christian home. I'm teaching them God's word. They have an advantage. They're going to know what the Bible says. But does that automatically make them better off than somebody else? No, because I'm still dependent upon the Spirit of God to take this truth and my prayers that I'm so fervently praying for for my kids to make it a reality in their lives. I still, I can, dis, I can dispense all the divine truth that I want to my children. But without a working of the Spirit of God to enliven them and to make them love Christ and know Christ, their eyes will never be opened. They have advantages, but they're not better off. Just like Israel, were they better off by having divine revelation? Did it, did it make them excel or surpass the other people, were they better than others? Were they better than the other, all the other nations around them? Just because God had simply, I mean, Deuteronomy makes it clear. It's not because you were great, not because you were mighty. It was simply because I chose to, to set my love upon you that you're my people. You're having all these advantages, but are you better? Do you surpass, do you excel other people? And Paul's answer to them is no. They had all the advantages, but they were not better off. They weren't better off for salvation. They weren't any better off in order to be able to fight sin. They had what it was. They had, they had more knowledge than all, than all the other nations. If anything, um, their refusal of God puts them in a more difficult position than all the other nations. 
Because all the other nations are operating by general revelation of what it is that they know to be true about God. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world through what has been made. So they were without excuse. All nations know that there is a God. There's no such thing as a true atheist. People just suppressing the truth of what they know about God actively and willingly. They, Israel, all the nations had that. Israel had that too. But not only that, Israel had di- continued further divine revelation and definition of who this God is. This is what I'm like. This is my name. This is how I operate. You want to know what's wrong with the world? Let me tell you. Oh, and by the way, I'm doing something about it. I'm going to send a redeemer. And he's going to save a people for himself. You guys, you know all this stuff. The other nations, they don't know. Did they have advantages? Incredible advantages. But were they better off? No. Because you can have, they can have all the divine revelation. Think about it. Sometimes I, I, I scratch my head. I, I read through this Exodus account, right, where... God's giving them the Ten Commandments, and the mountain is like surrounded by smoke and fire. It's quaking, the voice of God. I mean, people, right? It is this, it is this, as close as you can get to the physical manifestation of the presence of God with mankind, aside from Jesus Christ. And they're there, and they're hearing these things. So much to the point where they're like, Moses, you go, because if we go, we'll die. You go for us, and you receive, and you bring back to us. Moses is like, okay, and so he goes up, and of course we know what happens. Why wasn't that enough to make them worshipers of God? How can you be exposed to such incredible, wonderful things and not go, I love you, I want to follow you, thank you for delivering me from the slavery in Egypt, for parting the Red Sea and manna and all those things like that. What is still absolutely necessary was for them is for us now and will always be is the work of God himself to open up your eyes to his truthfulness and your sinfulness and depravity we see those two things you know God God wrote this book God knows a little bit of information he kind of knows what he's doing he writes things in a particular order on purpose And he highlights his truthfulness, and then he magnifies our sin and our depravity. And then in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, he blows open the doors with the gospel and the beauty of of what Christ has done for us and him being the propitiation for our sins. It's, It's absolutely incredible, which we'll get to in a few weeks. So they have advantages, but they're not better off. We forget that what is needed for salvation is not just revelation, it's re- regeneration. Possessing divine truth without divine power by the Spirit will not save. There's no life in that. You don't just need a book. You need the author of the book to open up your eyes. Genevan reformer Bernard Pictet wrote this, The mind of man is so blinded in spiritual matters that it requires the aid of the Spirit to render it attentive allay the passions, and to enlighten, convince, and convert us to godliness. That the mind of man is so blind in spiritual matters that it requires the spirit to render it attentive, to allay the passions, 
and to enlighten, convince, and convert us to godliness. That's what the fall has done. It hasn't just like, kind of like misshaped us. It's completely warped us. Entirely separated from God. I was thinking that this is, it's this interesting thing, this interesting dynamic that happens when we acquire knowledge. Gaining more knowledge about something, it, it, it does something interesting to us. It makes us feel, I mean, think about it. You know something either by experience, education, YouTube, TED Talk, right? These things are, we're all now professionals in these fields because we watch the YouTube video. So I know some stuff that you don't know. Why does knowledge do this to us where it gives us this feeling of like, I'm better. I've got a master's degree until you meet someone with a PhD and they're like, well, I've got a PhD. Right, knowledge does this weird thing to us where it makes us feel like we're better than the people around us that don't know as much information than we do. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. They're like, we got all this stuff. We got all this knowledge and all this information. We're so much better than everybody else. In this section of scripture, God just chops that down immediately. No, you're not any better. You're all we've already charged, he says, that all are under sin. I mean, to be under sin, he's, you know, all, we've already charged being what it is that he's already spoken about in chapter one and chapter two. That's the charge that's being laid out. We've already charged that all are under sin. All people, Jews with the Mosaic law, Gentiles with natural law, under sin, under the authority of sin. You might have had all the divine revelation. You're still under the authority of sin, just like a Gentile who didn't have any of that information is under the authority of sin. Everybody in this way is equal. Every single person created equally in the image of God. Every single person fallen equally in, in Adam under the authority and the weight of sin. And we talked about sin and defined what sin is when we went through chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I'm not going to go through all that again, but I will just mention this, that again, I find it's interesting that Paul, for the first time in Romans in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, ties together these three terms, sin, righteousness, and justification. And then he leaves those three things be what they are. And then in our text, again, in chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, he again brings up for the second time in Romans the idea of sin, the idea of righteousness in verse 10, and the idea of justification in verse 20. Why do you think that it is that he talks about sin, righteousness, and justification linked together? Because of the relationship and the role that they play with one another. So man is sinful in his situation. Let's let man be sinful in his situation as we saw in verse 9. Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. You are equal in that way. But not only that, let man be sinful in all of his ways. Last week we saw how God is true in all his ways. 
verses 10 through 18. Let man be sinful in all his ways. And this passage here is, is probably one of the, the most thorough and clear teachings of what we would call the doctrine of total depravity in all of Scripture. As it describes very clearly the nature of sinful man. Now, a couple things real quick before we, we, we go into these things. One, if you were, this is who you were. I mean, if you, before you were in Christ, this is who you were. For those who are outside of Christ, this is who they are. This is, you, you're, you're going to be forced to wrestle with, well, what I know and experience about people and what God's word actually says about people. You're going to experience a tension there. Let God be true. This is the way that God sees it. This is his description of fallen mankind. Let God be true in it. Thirdly, there are, even for the believer, there are elements of this in which, yeah, I've been delivered from the authority and the penalty of sin. I am one day going to be delivered completely from the presence of sin, but I still have the power of sin working in my life, some of which these elements are still working in me, that I am being sanctified through by the Lord's working in my life. Let's let man be sinful in all his ways, as it is written. Where did he write it? Who wrote it? Who's he quoting? God. From where? The Old Testament. I'm not going to give you all the references, but there are uh, uh, over half a dozen. Paul has taken, God, the author of Scripture, has taken all of these passages of the Old Testament. He's chosen from Psalms, various Psalms, from Isaiah, various places, and he's sandwiched them all together, and he goes, if you, okay, you want to know what my perspective is on the sinful condition of mankind, I'm going to take this part of your Bible right here, and I'm going to sandwich it into verses 10 through 18, and I want you to get a really good, clear picture of what sinful man looks like in the eyes of God. God has written it, and this is the way that it is. No one is righteous, he says in verse 10. And it's no coincidence that he starts off with a lack of righteousness. This is the fundamental problem. This is the reason why everything else in verses 10 through 18 exists. It's a lack of righteousness. This is what died in the fall. When it says that mankind is dead in our trespasses and our sin, we have died in the sense that we have lost our righteousness, we have lost an innocence, we have lost a fellowship with God. That's what happened in the fall. We lost our righteousness. We don't even have the righteousness that Adam had pre-fall. That, even that's completely gone. And this is the reason why we do what we do. None is righteous. No, not one. Not one person. A righteousness is what we need. A righteousness is what we get in Christ. His righteousness imputed to us, which, by the way, exceeds and is better than Adam's righteousness. What we lack is a righteousness. What we lost was our righteousness. What we gain in Christ is a righteousness in which the believer stands firmly and fully to enjoy, which we'll get to in just a, a moment here. 
because of that, we have lost an understanding. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. We don't understand God. Because we don't understand him, no one is seeking him. Not the true God. We saw in Romans chapter 1 that everybody has an idea of God, that he exists. But no one's seeking the true God. All these other gods, little g, and all these other religions, they're just, they're just man's way of fashioning God's in, God into their own image so that they can worship the God that they create, which in turn actually ends up serving them. No, one's, uh, no one understands God. Tell you what, as a Christian, you don't fully understand God either. Neither do I. His, his ways are not our ways. We could go on and on and on about that. But the unbelievers certainly, because they lack a righteousness, they don't understand God, they're not seeking for God. We hear that all the time. Oh, they're seeking God. No, they're not. They're not. The Bible says they're not. Not the true God. They don't want anything. I'll tell you what. They're not seeking him. They don't want anything to do with him. They have all turned aside. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. They've turned aside, deviated, fallen. At the fall, this was the choice that we made. All mankind has deviated. All mankind has fallen, turned aside from God, that we made that choice, and we have become worthless. The term is used to describe milk when it sours. Mankind has soured. We have turned you, you, you've ever experienced or smelt sour milk? It's disgusting. Like, I'm sure there's some, like, you know, homestead YouTube video out there that someone makes something useful out of sour milk. I'm, I, I, it's worthless. Just throw it away. That's the way that Scripture describes the wretchedness and the turning of mankind because of sin. We have soured. We're, we're, we're good for, for nothing. The depravity of mankind is incredibly great indeed. No one is practicing good. That, that term when it says no one does good, not even, no, not even one, could be read. No one is practicing good, not even as much as one. Currently. It's not like no one does good, no one has done good. You know, no one, There's no good people in the past. The, the text actually read no one is currently practicing good. No one ever has. Not true good in the eyes of God. This is, what, this is what depravity does. Is that I can look around and I can say, yeah, like, people are doing good things for one another. I'm not going to deny that. It, it, we have some, some, some natural laws that are in place that are good for mankind and civilization. Those things are good in a sense. But they're not of any ultimate good in the eyes of God because they do not come from faith. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Even the, you know what that tells me? That even the good, the good things that unbelievers do are some way, shape, and form twisted and, and oriented towards self or towards the glorification of self or the glorification of, uh, towards another person over the glorification of God. Because they're not seeking God's good. They're not seeking God's glory. 
They may be doing good things, but it's not ultimately for God because they've turned aside from him. They're doing it for, the, for their own good or for the good of someone else, which in some ways, shape, or form, in a practical level, it, it has some good value to it, but not of any ultimate good to God. You're not going to be able to go to God and go, look, God, didn't I do all these good things, all this humanitarian work, and I gave all this money, and I've spent all these, I went on all these trips, and I built all these homes, and I did all these things. It was for all these, it was for all these people, but it wasn't for me. It was never for God, and in that way, it has zero eternal value. Zero. No one is doing good. No one is, not even as much as one, is practicing good. It's not to say that it's not worth doing good things, but in, in, in an ultimate, eternal perspective, they have no good value in the eyes of God. He goes on in verses 13 and 14 to then address speech. 13 and 14 addresses speech. 15 through 18 then addresses human action. And these things are the two ways, really, in which mankind lives out our depraved condition. The way that we speak and the things that we actually do. Sin, it, 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 it infiltrates every area of our lives. And it's revealed most clearly in our speech, in our actions. Listen to the way that it describes mankind's speech. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Remember, this is God's declaration of, of sinful man. Their, the venom of asps is under their lips. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Jesus would say in Matthew 15, 18, is that from out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So in addressing their speech and their mouths, what is he ultimately addressing? The condition of the heart, the unregenerate heart. He describes their speech as death, deception, poison, cursing, bitterness, and corrosion. It's their dialect. It's the language that the non-believer speaks. Not, <clears throat> not only that, but in 15 through 18 addresses their actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of, of God before their eyes. And their lack of righteousness directly feeds into and leads to not fearing God. And all this stuff that's sandwiched in between those two things is just the pure and natural outflow of the lack of righteousness and not fearing God. And if you read through Proverbs, you see what an emphasis is put on the fear of God. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. The remedy to all wickedness and evil Fear the Lord, according to Proverbs. But you can't fear the Lord if you're not, if you don't love him, if he's not true. And their actions are described that they carry out what is 
carrying out what is evil in the heart. They kill, they ruin, they cause misery. There's no peace. There's no fear of God. Now the good news in this is that this is what the kingdom of God and the work of Christ is busy overcoming and undoing. You have to go into the depths and the darkness of the, and the wickedness of sin so that the work of Christ becomes that much more incredible and awe-inspiring and unfathomable. You, you look at the, the, the dark corner that mankind is painted into by the righteousness of God, not wanting to have anything to do with God and his goodness and his righteousness and his loving kindness. And then you see what Christ has done to undo this. Why aren't you this way anymore? Because of Christ. Why am I not like this anymore? One simple reason. The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that God, he, 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 he gave us, he gave us this divine revelation, and then he opened up our eyes. There were many years, 20 years of my life, exposed to this divine revelation at various times in various ways. Never had an impact until that day when God who called me before the foundation of the world said, today is the day I open your eyes. I send the Spirit of God within you to circumcise your heart and regenerate you. And then all of a sudden, this old book that I always knew of that was so boring and old became so wonderfully different to me. Divine revelation coupled with the Spirit, the work of the Spirit of God, saving people. That's what Christ does. Let, let me read again, if you will, turn there with me to Titus chapter 3. I want to read again what our brother Derek read this morning. I want to draw our attention in contrasting the darkness and the depravity of mankind with the incredible love and mercy that we've been shown in Christ. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, the various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, the, the depth and the, the thickness and the richness of that text there is incredible. Talking about the richness. He, the, the Spirit of God richly poured out on us through Christ justified by his grace, becoming heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, the way that God describes his work that he's done for us in Christ in overcoming our depravity and our sinfulness is 
it's not only it's not only the contrast it exceeds the beauty and the kindness and the mercy that's shown to us in Christ exceeds the depth and the depravity and the weakness as it's described in scripture wherever you see the darkness and the depravity of sin know that Christ shines brighter than it and he is sent his spirit into the world each one of us as believers having possessing the spirit of god to then be what salt and light exposing and driving away the darkness let man be sinful in his situation let man be sinful in his ways let's let man be sinful in his rebellion as we see in verses 19 and 20 Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's interesting that he introduces the law again here. Why mention the law in a passage where you're talking so clearly and, and deeply about the depravity of mankind? Well, he's already told us in chapter 2, verse 12, for all who have sinned, which is what we're talking about, without the law will also perish without the law. And all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What sinful man needs is the law of God. We need the gospel. We need the good news. But good news isn't good unless you really know how bad this situation is. God, through his law, states what it is that he requires perfection right i mean well so he'll go on and say in verse 20 for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin but i thought he said earlier in chapter 2 verse 13 for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before god but the doers of the law who will be justified i thought the doers that not the hearers, but the doers will be justified in the sight of God. Now you're telling me that no human being will be justified in the sight of God by the law. These things seem to be contradicting one another. Which one is it? Well, it's both. What he's doing in 2.13 is he's, he's setting up the situation. This is the law. This is the standard of perfection. This is what is required. Do this and you might live. But he's setting them up for failure. For their good, to see that you can't, there is this standard and you can't meet it. What he's telling them in 320, he's just gotten to the point and he's like, this is the fact of the matter. No more beating around the bush by it. The, the standard has been set. You can't meet it. So therefore, no one will be justified by works of the law. Because by through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You ha we have to present the law clearly to people. We have to avoid the two extremes of legalism and antinomianism. Legalism is using the law as a form of righteousness. Antinomianism is just, oh, well, the law is no, it's no good. It's no, it has no use to it. No, present the law. Let God be true. Let the law do what God has designed for it to do, to reveal his perfection and his righteousness, to, to expose you for your lack of perfection and righteousness. And to be undone by it. I'm, I'm talking about be utterly undone by it. To the point where you're like, well then, I have no hope. 
I, I cannot be saved. And when, that, when a person reaches that level and their eyes are laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, well, now he becomes Savior. Let the law do what the law is supposed to do. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin so that every mouth may be stopped. I'm reminded of when he says in verse 19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I think of Job chapter 40, verse 4, when he engages at the end, right? He, he gathers like, he has the gall to engage with God regarding what it is that's happened in his life and God begins to respond and Job's response is, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke out of turn, God. Your truth. Let the whole world, if, if, the, if the Jews who had this divine revelation weren't automatically converted by it, then certainly the whole world, and they're still under sin, certainly the whole world is under sin as well. And let the whole and anybody who's bringing their justification for why they should be made right with God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, put your hand on your mouth. You don't know what you're saying. There's salvation found only in Christ and in Him alone. So the question is: Have you lived God's standard of perfection? None of us have. I hope you answered that question with no. Because then you hope in the work of Christ in your place, the only one who has worked and kept that standard of perfection. In many ways, Paul finishes where he began addressing the Jews. You're no better off because you have the law, the covenants, the promises, circumcision, and yet you are under sin like the rest of mankind. The reality is that you had the mirror revealing your ugliness to yourself where others did not. And instead of allowing the law in that mirror to reveal your ugliness, you use it to try and scrub yourself clean. Let the law expose us and let the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ then save us from the depravity that we've seen and that has been defined for us this morning. As we prepare to go to the table together, this is the reason why communion is such a refreshing time of worship. Because I know that I don't deserve the righteousness and the mercy that's shown to me in Christ. And in many ways, I still struggle with the things that I say and the things that I do. They're much more in line with the old nature than it is with the new nature. But the table is this wonderful reminder of the faithfulness of God for him to fulfill the promises that he made and complete the work that he began in my life. And so I partake of this communion time with, you know, we should partake of this communion time with an extraordinary amount of gratitude, but worship and proclamation on, on the goodness and the truthfulness of God being declared regarding our condition, and then the provision of the Savior on our behalf, which now we, we think of and are mindful of as we come to the table. And this has incredible practical application. You talk about, you look about, the, uh, you, you think about the way that sin is described here. And then you think about the practical ways in which this is still ongoing in your life. 
And yes, you stand in the righteousness of Christ if you are his being given that righteousness. But we should then actively seek to turn from and repent of the things that we do that are consistent with the old you, the old me. As we come to the table, the elements are on the, the tables behind you. And you can get those elements returned back to your seat for some time of prayer, consideration, evaluation, worship, declaration of God's goodness and kindness. And then we'll partake of communion in a few moments together. So the elements are on the tables, you can get those and then return back to your seats and we'll partake of the communion time together here shortly.